and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Dave. I'm the coordinator of adult services at the Central Library in Cranston, and my pronouns are he, him. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm John Kostreva. I'm a former reporter, business editor, columnist, and assistant managing editor at the Providence Journal. I retired from the newspaper in 2017, uh, taught for three years at Bryant University, a course called Writing Workshop to First-Year Students, and currently I write a column weekly online and in print for the Providence Journal called Walking Rhode Island about hiking across the state. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. Um, so a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about your column and about hiking and give some tips and tricks for new hikers, which I'm excited about because uh, we were talking about it before the show, but you had said about so many first time hikers have come out during the pandemic. I'm not an outdoorsy person. And the pandemic was like the thing that made me be like, hmm, maybe I should try hiking because uh, that. I think that's the only thing that would have got me to even have that thought. (laughs) But before we get too much into that, let's start out, as we always do, with what have you been reading? Well, it's been a diverse summer of reading for me this year. Uh, Currently, I'm reading uh, The Warmth of Other Suns by uh, Isabel Wilkerson, a wonderful book about the uh, great migration of uh, millions of black Americans from 1915 to 1970, uh, a history that I knew some about but not a whole lot about. Uh, Wilkerson does a brilliant job. Um, she is a journalist by trade, excellent writer, wonderful research. So this is a big book, 650 pages. And when I opened it in the summer, I said, you know, do I want to do this? But I'll tell you, she carries it off by doing a historical narrative. She focuses on three characters, one from Florida, one from Mississippi, one from Louisiana, traces their life in the South and what it was like under the Jim Crow laws there and then traces their migration to the North and what that meant not only to them personally, but what it meant to the country in general as far as it's developed. It's a, it's a wonderful read, a fascinating story, and I give Wilkinson's credit uh, for pulling it off. It's a, um, it's a wonderful book. It's interesting. The book came out in 2010, and I'm just getting to it now. Uh, I belong to a, a book club at Bryant University, and several of the members recommended it. And so finally, with their urging, I was able to crack it this summer, and I'm glad I did. It's just a... Uh, a wonderful piece of writing, a wonderful history, and it's a it's a good book. Uh, besides that, um, uh, I started the summer uh, with finishing off John Le Carre, his final uh, novel before he passed away, called Agent in the Field, which is a uh, again a brilliant piece of intrigue, mystery, detailed. Um, I one uh, read one uh, critic at the time who said it's all made up, but it's true, and I love that because Le Carre knows his stuff so well based on his background working for British intelligence for a while when he was much younger. Uh, he really carries that off, and it was a nice way to finish his long series of books. When I finished Lacare, uh, a good friend of mine, a former colleague at the Journal, Andy Smith, said, well, you should try Mick Heron, who's a British novelist who writes about um, uh, MI5, British intelligence. So I started with the last one that Heron wrote. It's called uh, Sluphouse, S-L-O-U-G-H, pronounced Slough, I believe. Interesting book about um, people who've been discredited, agents of the British Secret Service who have been discredited, made mistakes, failed. They sort of push them aside into an operation to do sort of bookkeeping tasks, but then they get involved with different operations. It's an interesting read, intriguing, 
a nice follow to the Lacare book. And then once I finished the last one, I said, because he's done a series of these books, I'm going to go back and read the first one, which he actually wrote in 2010. And you see some of the same characters. It's like an origin story, how they started, where they came from. Also, the evolution of the British uh, intelligence services from pre-Brexit to after Brexit. We see the changes and the consternation and the funding and what's England's view in the world and how Russia's become more powerful in a different way than the Cold War. So it's a nice um, way to go backwards to forwards, I thought. Uh, another good read for the summer was great during July, so it was a good way to uh, start the summer off. So. And are those Heron books, are they um, are they fiction or nonfiction? Yeah, they're fiction. They're fiction, the okay. Novelist. It's all um, novel, but again, he has a yeah. good deal of detail, and, and it reminded me of the Lacari books. He knows a lot yeah. of intricacies of how MI5 work, uh, the structure from the top to the bottom, how the agents work, some of the tradecraft stuff, which I love. Uh, and again, they're all uh, brain power. They're, they're all about how people think to outwit other people. Mm. So whereas a lot of the action movies you see on TV or the movies now, they're all about action, you know, blowing stuff up. Lacari and Heron are all about brains, how, how we think through problems, figure things out. Why are people doing things? How can I find a way to get the best of them? And all that's very, very intriguing to me. It's, it's really um, a, a wonderful way to tell a story and a wonderful way to write. And I think both of those guys pulled it off pretty well. So, um, so good for them. Good question. Well, well my reading, uh, no one should be surprised um, if you've heard me on this podcast before. Um, I've been reading a lot of science fiction lately. Um, and I've kind of stumbled into this concept of hope punk. It's it's not so much a, a genre as it is like an aesthetic in science fiction. There's a lot of genuine, sincere emotion. It's very earnest. Um, it will typically focus around the concept of a found family, people who kind of come together and then stand up for and fight for this family and for their beliefs. Uh, so it's definitely not all rosy and um, what's the word? Utopia. Like it's not a utopia, but it's definitely thinking about the best of humanity and how can we re retain that optimism and that fighting for what's right. And so a couple of books that I've read recently feel like they fall into that hope punk aesthetic. One is a recently released graphic novel called Bubble, and that's by um, Jordan Morris, Sarah Morgan, and the art's by Tony Cliff, and uh, the color is Natalie Reese. Um, it is a um, graphic novel adaptation of a podcast. It's a comedy podcast. Um, that came out about a year ago, and the concept is that uh, these people live in these bubbles on an alien landscape um, where they're protected from all the aliens and um, uh, savage wildlife outside. Um, and there is a an app, so you can work for it to go and fight aliens that make it inside the bubble. And so it has this really jokey premise of a gig economy around killing alien monsters. But what ends up happening is this group of people find each other and end up supporting each other through all of this um, fighting monsters and stuff. So what could just be, you know, a straight, you know, I, I think it kind of feels similar to what you said, John, about, you know, it's not just fighting, like the fighting is for a purpose. Right. You know, it's not chewing up scenery just to, to do the thing to see what would happen if that building explodes or whatever. But it's very much, you know, these monsters, and then eventually this giant tech company is trying to manage everything and we need to fight for this little group of people that have come together around these circumstances uh and that's really good and and i really think like the the podcast was really enjoyable i'm a big fan particularly of jordan morris and his writing but i do feel like this graphic novel takes it in places that 
take it beyond just kind of being a joke or just, you know, being a joke about, um, you know, Uber drivers that fight monsters, that it's very, um, really does some interesting things with it. And it's also been options to be a, um, an animated, I don't know if it's going to be an animated TV series or an animated movie, but that's also coming down the line. And it'll be interesting to see how that develops this, this jokey story. It's always fun to watch, watch stuff change as it goes to different formats. Um, and then another, gra- uh, this isn't a graphic novel, but um, I started reading The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. It's by Becky Chambers. It's the first in the Wayfarers series. And it's, again, it's got the exact same thing. It's a distant future. Earth has been destroyed. Nobody lives there anymore. But the Earthlings that made it out became a part of what's called the Galactic Cooperative. I'm sure, all the alien species that live out in the galaxy. And um, so it's kind of, there's a lot of calling back to the perils of, you know, what happened to humanity as they were leaving the Earth. But they also seem to be doing fine for each other. Um later on and um, a big message in it is that the humanity that made it off the earth reconciled how aggressive they were and kind of figured it out like we have to stick together as a species and so again that idea that things seem dire right now and it's hard to think about what a future might look like that's hopeful but this is kind of uh, becky chambers with this book is giving a picture of like eventually probably things will be fine and here's one way that it might happen so it's very believable um group of people mostly uh mostly humans but a couple of alien species they come together on a a tunneling ship so they tunnel almost like warp warp points from one part in the galaxy to another and um you know they're just living their lives and having really good sounding meals all the food sounds really good in the future so um that's really nice and it's it's all very optimistic which i think i must be craving because everything's kind of coming around to that attitude right now it's funny. This just shows that Dave and I's taste in books overlaps a lot. That you said things that are on my to read list. I wanted to check out Bubble, and I wanted to read the the Wayfarer series uh, for a bit too. Um, but right now, and I think it is the beginning of a series, but don't quote me on it. Um, a sci-fi novel, but that's kind of not. Uh, at least I'm like less than a hundred pages in, but does not seem like it is in this like hope punk uh, aesthetic that you're talking about. It's actually very like, it's, it's very based on just like survival and focusing on like how, how like ruthless space is, like how tough it is to, um, to, to live and survive in space. Um, I think the tagline is like when survival becomes cruelty or something like that. So it's, yeah, Yeah. um, it's, it's, so that made it seem really dark and it is kind of dark, but, um, so the premise is that there is, um, there are people on what are called generation ships. So this, this society at one point, it's like, has a lot of technology and science, but also has magic. And it was like magic was the reason they were able to do faster than light travel, but they've like lost that ability because of stuff that happened to magic um, in this world. So now people have to travel at sublight speed to go long distances through space. So they basically just load up these ships with as much supplies as they can. And, uh, and and just have like whole generate like whole families through multiple generations travel through space to get like from one point of the galaxy to another and so food is like a very cuz it's a finite resource like everything 
circles around like if it's worth the calories to the point where the main character they find out that she has a type of magic that isn't terribly useful on a ship because uh, she can her magic is that she can manipulate people's genes. And when they, they used to be like an agricultural society or have more agricultural society, that used to be a very valuable like power to have. But now that she's on the ship, if you don't have the power that makes you good at engineering, the power that makes you good at navigating the stars, uh, you're you basically are worthless on the ship. So I guess because she's family, they don't straight out like kill her, but everyone treats her like super poorly because they treat her as like completely expendable. And so, but I'd, like I said, I'm only a hundred page, like less than a hundred pages in, but already mm-hmm. she's like, she's worked on this plan to try to, uh, well, the part of me, she just like escaped the ship and she's basically trying to like, make her own life that isn't dependent on like contributing to the well-being of this ship and being useful. But yeah, it's really made me think about how how like people can especially like kids so she has a lot of siblings and then like younger cousins on this ship and because they see the captain who is her aunt and the first mate which is her mother treat her poorly, all these kids like just how quickly all these kids instantly start to treat her like so poorly it's just so interesting to me just how much the kids like model that behavior and and take take their values from the adults that are around um but I'm really excited to see where it goes even if sometimes like it's kind of tough just because everyone is so cruel to the to the main character but like I said she the part of me she just left the ship so hopefully more (laughs) better things are coming her way yeah that's fascinating. What's what's the name of that book again? Oh yeah, sorry, I went on the whole thing. I was distracted because <laughs> Duke came in. Uh, so that's Etherbound by E. K. Johnson. Ether give that a try. Good for you. Good description. Yeah, it's a it's a YA book and it's kind of short. I'm not sure if it's going to be a series. Like I said, I felt like I saw something on the author's social media about it. Like what? It's going to be a trilogy, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Mm. Um, but yeah, it looks like it's like under 300 pages. So it probably would be a quick, quick read for anything that's looking, anyone who's looking for like sci-fi, interesting and quick. So besides books, have either of you been watching anything interesting lately? Well, I can uh, mention a couple of things. So um, a while back, I was invited by the library to use the Canopy site, which I've never used before. And um, we found that and we found some wonderful older movies which has been a nice break from some of the, you know, Amazon Prime, Netflix things we've been watching at home. Mm. And um, we found a movie last weekend called um, The Bookshop, which is a 2017 movie. It's based on a novel by Penelope Fitzgerald. And it's a wonderful story about a war widow. Um, She loses her husband uh, during World War II, and she moves to a small seaside town in England and tries to open a bookshop in the house where they lived before he went off to war. She tells a wonderful story about how um, when they met, he used to read to her, read books to her. So their love of books um, developed together, and she misses that. So she decides she would like to open a bookshop, and uh, she goes through the process again, uh, doesn't have much money. She fights with the banker. She fights with the, the town officials, but she finally gets a chance to open the bookshop, but she also is in conflicts from some of the town elders who don't want to use that property for a bookshop. They want to use it for some sort of other historical purposes. 
Mm. So the movie's about this tangle, this conflict about this dream of this woman who's trying to develop this bookshop to get people to read. And what's interesting that, again, you remember the time period that as she opens the bookshop, she has to be successful. So she's trying to find books that people will read. So one day uh, through the mail, an advanced copy of Lolita comes in. And she wonders, you know, well, the people in this small conservative town, what will they think if she puts this for sale? So there's an old gentleman who lives on the other side of the island, and um, he's a great reader, but they pass occasionally, never speak. So she sends him a copy of the book because he's a classic old conservative guy, and, and she wants to know, you know, whether she should bring this into the bookshop. And the gentleman replies by a handwritten note, I loved it, order 250 copies. The people won't understand it, <laughs> but they'll sell a million copies. And she does that. She brings it to the 50 clients because it's the, the talk of the town. Huh. Of course, that runs afoul of some of the town elders and the stories about the conflict. So I do want to mention that uh, the main character is played by El- Emily Mortimer, who is, you'll, you'll recognize if you see her on screen. She's brilliant. The old gentleman who lives off by himself, who gets the mailing from the bookshop owner, is Bill Nighy. We all know him, yeah. character actor. And the old matriarch of the village, who's conservative, she's married to a general, and uh, she wants to control the whole town, and the bookshop is the last thing she wants in her town. That's played by Patricia Clarkson. One surprise, so the, the, the movie is narrated, but for some reason, I never saw a credit as far as who the narrator was of the movie. It's a beautiful voice, um, which follows the movie well. The narration is done by Julie Christie. If you know her and her voice, a wonderful actress, which really gives it a good tone for this small seaside village. So that was one of those finds you come across and um, uh, you loved and, and we loved that. Again, after all the modern movies we've been watching, it was a nice sort of throwback movie that um, we really enjoyed. And again, it's on Canopy. It was for free. I was able to figure out how to put the uh, smart TV into the back of my computer and we ran it and it ran great. So uh that was a that was a good find. Right on. No, Canopy is a, a lot of fun. That's you know a lot of great movies to stream there. I think there's a lot of the Criterion collection is available yes. on Canopy. Um, I I love to watch um, What We Do in the Shadows, which is a comedy about um, vampires in New Zealand. Um, and that's a, you know when I don't know what to watch, I tend to just you know watch What We Do in the Shadows again because it always makes me laugh and you know. It's got a nice mix of, I don't do horror movies, but it's got a nice a nice little bit of horror in there, so it makes me feel like I watched a horror movie, but I also got to laugh at Taika Waititi doing vampire things, so, you know. So, yeah, we, we, we've been trying to figure out, you know, movie making occasionally, try to figure out, you know, how movies are made. Um, one of our sons was very interested in Quentin Tarantino and, and did college papers on and, and and just fascinated about how you make a movie and how you put it together. And so when on Canopy, we decided to go back and look at some of the Hitchcock movies to see how, you know, he made these movies. And I had never seen uh, before Dial M for Murder. But again, as far as telling a story in which he shows you the, the murder, and then the story is all about how this detective figures out, you know, through misdirection, who actually did the murder and how they're trying to delude him. It's just a fascinating piece of movie making. Um, I don't think that critics consider this the best movie that Hitchcock ever made. But boy, it's just a nice piece of work. Um, Black and white, uh, great acting. And I want to mention, uh, and again, you're a little younger than I am, but Ray Milland, uh, brilliant actress, actor. Grace Kelly, who we all know, brilliant Mm -hmm. actress. And Robert Cummings, that I grew up him on TV shows. 
you know, in the 60s and the 70s. But back then, this is a movie in 1954 when it was made. Um, you think about it, 70 years ago. Just a, just a wonderful piece of work, a wonderful piece of film. And um, we're going to explore more with Canopy. I, I try to go back and find, you know, when movie ma- making was, it's still an art, but it's not quite as artful, I don't think, as it was back when people were playing with it and experimenting with it. What can I do with a camera? How can I do different angles? What can I do with sound? And they yeah. had these great character actors who came off the stage and were playing with movie making. And wow, how can we use these these, these talented actors? And so we enjoy we enjoy doing that. So um, those are two movies we've watched in the last week that we we very much enjoyed again free on Canopy. So I'm um, I'm an advocate. So Dave, you were saying about yeah. what we do in the shadows, but uh, oh, yeah. it seems like that's something you occasionally go back to. Is there anything from like recently that you've watched that you want to talk about? Yeah, so um, one, one thing recently that, again, speaking about going back to and then what kind of made me feel like all of my media is going towards finding optimistic stories. So I recently rewatched Good Omens on Amazon Prime, um, which is an adaptation of the novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Um, and that's just, it's such a faithful adaptation um, to to the source material that just um, is really perfect. Michael Sheen and... David Tennant are just fantastic as the angel Aziraphale and the demon Crowley. And just watching it again, you know, it makes me realize that it is all about Aziraphale and Crowley ending up kind of kind of liking the earth and maybe not wanting to end it. And so doing what they could to stop the, you know, end of days with uh, the the son of Satan returning to earth. And, you know, it's just, it's a really fantastic show. And uh, they recently announced uh, Good Omens season two which is kind of funny because there was never a Good Omens book too. But as it turns out, there is an outline of the book that Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett were going to write, but never did. So Neil Gaiman's back on to develop that that second season from that outline. And I'm really excited to see how that goes. So I rewatched the, the first season now to, to get excited. Good for you. A lot, yeah, a lot of really good performances. I mean, again, you know, talking about there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of special effects and um, digital effects going on, but their performances are are really what make it more than just glitzy stuff happening on the screen. But David Tennant just completely embodies that character as like, just a slinky demon on Earth. Um, he did a great job, so I'm looking forward to him reprising that. I'm sure. Yeah, David Tennant is a is a fine actor. I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, you know, it's interesting you talk about the performances, but. Um... You know, as I get older, it's the craft, it's the art of what people do, whether you're a writer, whether you're a movie maker, whether you're a performer. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times we get bamboozled by the glitz of something and the shine of something. There's this famous phrase that people use, you know, getting mesmerized by shiny objects, that type yeah. of thing. But if you really want to think about something, you know, what's the best of who we are? It's the art that we create. Mm-hmm. You know, I've come to realize that as I've gotten older. That That's really who we are. Dave, you talked about being optimistic, you know, with all the negativity that's gone on here the last couple of years, whether it's politics or government or, or viruses or whatever, to be optimistic, look at the art, you yeah. know, look at the art we create and have created. That's really who we are. Um, I'm a newspaper guy going way back, and I always like to start in the old days with the editorial pages, the editorial section, and read the news. Now I start with the art sections because I realize, yeah. what are we doing? What are we creating that's going to stand the test of time and be there 50, 100 years from now? Just like I mentioned before, a Hitchcock movie stands the test of time. 
Mm. I think that's what art is, right? Yeah. Great writing that stands the test of time. And that that's the optimism I see. We are still creating great art, great performances. I think one thing I missed more than anything else during the pandemic is you couldn't go to a museum anymore. You, know, you couldn't go and see the stuff that I never saw when I was a kid. Mm. And I wished I had because, you know, you only get so much time. But um, so that's that's my thinking. You know, And, you know, this interview brought back again, what do I care more about now? And I hope that people hear some of that, you know, from an old time where guys been around. You know, we want to be optimistic. Look at our art. We're still creating great stuff. And it really is, David, optimism for who we are and what we And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Do you want to design a garden or rework an older one? Presenter Oliver Chamberlain draws on the work of noted landscape architect Harold Caparn, shares garden design ideas, and talks about a clear vision to future delight the book Chamberlain wrote about Caparn's design output. This event takes place at the Central Library on Tuesday, August 10th at 6.30 p.m. and is free and open to the public. Registration is required. Visit cranstonlibrary.org design for more information and to sign up. Part of our adult summer reading program, Downtime is preparing an episode featuring our community sharing their favorite books from the summer. Call us at 401-943-9080, extension 157, and leave a one-minute review of your favorite book, and you could hear your voice on the show. This episode will air in late August. Again, that's 401-943-9080, extension 157, and you could be part of a future episode of Downtime. So I want us to have enough time to talk about the reason you're here, which is hiking and your articles. Um, so... Well, wait a minute. The reason I'm here is to talk with you and to enjoy your company. <laughs> what do you have to say? So, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, so, I thought we would start off our hiking conversation part of the conversation um, with uh, if you want to just talk a little bit about um, your articles and how how that started of you writing about these different trails in Rhode Island and. Uh, sure, I'd love to. Um... I've been hiking on and off in Rhode Island uh, for a number of years. Um, it's interesting that when we first moved here in 1988 uh, and I came to work at the Providence Journal, I was so busy with getting settled and getting the job going and you know raising a family that I didn't get out to explore much of Rhode Island. We were pretty much locked into greater Providence and the Cranston area. And I really didn't start to get out a little bit until our boys got old enough to join the scouting program. And then I got up to Northwest Rhode Island to the Buck Hill area or down to Yagu during the summer or down to Arcadia in South County, and really started to see that, you know, the beauty of the state and some of the wonderful places to walk and hike. But then the boys aged out of hiking, and, you know, I got back involved with the Providence Journal, and, of course, it was a difficult time at the paper. We went through a, a local owner and then an owner from Texas and then another owner, and it was a difficult time, and I didn't really get out as much as I wanted to see the state. So when I retired in 2017, I was exhausted, first of all, the newspaper, and I wanted to get healthier, I wanted to explore a little bit more, and I wanted to connect with a few more people. So I started to get out and walk, and I got involved with a group of uh, 
guys I knew from scouting from years ago, an organization called the Outdoor Adventure Corps, run by a guy named Jim Robinson, and we started to hike around the state. Uh, I remember hiking the north-south uh, trail from the Blue Shutters Beach in Charleston along the western border all the way up to Barville, 78 miles. And we did that in about seven legs, 10 miles a, a weekend. And it was amazing. I saw parts of the state I'd never seen before. I understood a little bit of the history and the culture of different parts of the state, and I loved it. And during that part time, I started to um, uh, post on Facebook some of the hikes, what I was seeing, what I was learning. And my God, I got uh, posts and replies from people I haven't seen for years and years and years. Reconnected with people I knew from high school and college, family members who had moved away. So it was a good experience. So that went on for most of 2017. We got stronger. I got to New Hampshire, hiked some of the 4,000 footers. We actually got to Maine. We hiked Mount Katahdin, the knife's edge, which was amazing. It was brilliant. Loved it. Hiking was something I wanted to do. I started teaching Bryant that fall in 2017, and I found that I'm not an academic. I was never a professional but professor by trade, that if I got out and walked some of the trails in northern Rhode Island in between classes, I could think about what I wanted to teach, think about the students, actually compose a class while I hiked on some of those great farms in northern Rhode Island. And I loved it. So I continued to hike, continued to post on Facebook, and it was a great experience. After I left Bryant, the pandemic was here, and I wanted to make a contribution at some point. So I started writing some uh, business economic stories for the Providence Journal as a freelancer. That was my stock and trade at the journal. It's what I had done for a living. And there was a lot going on with the pandemic, and um, I got a good response to that. We got to January. I still wanted to make a contribution. We were in the middle of the pandemic. I noticed that there were more and more people walking through our neighborhood who I'd never seen before. They had to get out of the house. They were working from home. They were locked in. They couldn't travel. They were walking. Whenever I went into the woods to have a hike, I saw all these first-time hikers trying to get out, trying to explore Rhode Island. You know, During the pandemic, what could they do? I said, you know, maybe I could make a contribution by writing a little bit about walking and hiking in Rhode Island. I pitched it to the editors. They liked the idea. They said, why don't you start? Why don't you try? Uh, do a few of them. Let's see what the reaction is. So the goal was simple. Take people to Rhode Island, places they may have not seen before. If they've been there before, try to show them something they may have missed, they didn't know about, some of the history of the area, what they'll see along the trail, that type of thing. So we started. Um, got a pretty good response the first months. Let's do a second month. Pretty good response the second month. Let's keep going. So I continue to write one a week uh, for the Providence Sunday Journal in print, also online. And um, we've continued uh, till today. So it's the middle of the summer. I'm still doing them. I'm posting them on Facebook, setting a pretty good response. I've got 25 uh, done at this point. And I'm enjoying it so much, um, I'm going to continue. So I'll mention one other thing. During the pandemic, I was hiking by myself, being very, very careful, doing a lot of pre-planning, knowing where I was going, doing the mapping. And I heard from a lot of people uh, who wanted to hike. So once the restrictions sort of came off in May and June, I've been out hiking with other people now. Some people I hiked with years ago for years, some new people as well. And there's nothing like following the trail and hearing everybody's story, you know, what they've been up to, what they've been doing, talking. But you also get that time, just the solitude and the isolation of the trail to think about what's going on. And so, um, so far, so good. Uh, the journal lets me continue. I'm going to keep doing it until they tell me to stop, at least in the near future. So uh, 
that's walking Rhode Island. I know there's uh, several fans of your column amongst the Cranston Library staff, so I'm sure Thank they, you. I'm sure they hope that it will go on for a long time. So you you said that part of your motivation for doing these articles was to help new hikers, people who are new to the hobby, um, get started. So what would be some of your advice for novice hikers? Um, yeah, sure. I, I get that question all the time. And, you know, thankfully, people continue to write an email. And I welcome email. They're asking me questions about the same thing you're asking me. Yeah, th- there are some basics, okay? So you have to know what you're doing, first of all. If you're going for a walk or a hike, you should know where you're going. So you really should do some pre-planning, okay? You should definitely have a map. You should read something about the hike so you know where the landmarks are, so you know what you get involved with. Um, once you know where you're going and you have an idea of what the difficulty of the hike, is it easy? Is it flat? Is it moderate? Is there some hills? Is it rocky? Uh, we all know what we can do. Um, you know, way back five years ago, I could hike the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire. Well, you know what? I'm not sure I need to do the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire anymore. You know, you know, our bodies change and our interests change. So know what you want to do. And at the start, don't fight off more than you can do. Do the flat trails. Farms are great. And we've got a thousand farms in Rhode Island that luckily have been preserved. Almost every town has a land trust. And if you check on the web for town land trust, you'll see nice mile, two mile flat hikes. Easy. Besides knowing where you're going, again, footwear is very, very important. Okay. I've seen people on the trails in sandals. No, okay? Good footwear, good sole, boots. Um, you know, know your feet. Um, you know, there's an old phrase in the military, you know, an army travels on its feet, right? Your, your feet don't behave, don't perform, and you're not going anywhere. So make sure you take about your footwear. Um, very, very important. Um, always take water on your hikes. A small day pack backpack. Nobody ever takes enough water. Two liters is nice. You'll be amazed at how thirsty you get on the trail, and you can't wait to get thirsty. You should drink periodically to make sure you're hydrated. It's what every athlete is told every day. If you wait till you get thirsty, it's too late. You want to drink along the trail as, as you know, little as you walk or as much as you walk. Make sure you drink plenty of water. And I'll just mention one other thing. So summer is bug time, right? Insects. you got to be careful. You know, you, you don't want to get a bite of any type. So, again, sunny, wide trails are better where the air blows through and gives the bugs a chance to get off you. Shady, uh, wet areas uh, are, you know, habitat for mosquitoes. You want to sort of stay away from there. Light clothing is better than darker clothing. If you're going through any grass at all, tuck your pants into your socks uh, so, so anything can't get on your body. And, um, uh, again, uh, just be careful. Whenever you end the hike, make sure you do an inspection. Make sure nothing's uh, gotten onto you, nothing's able to bite you, that type of thing. And uh, if you do use repellent of some type, uh, make sure you use something with a deed in it. And I usually uh, put it on my hand and then spread it over me with my hand. I don't spray it all over the place. Put it on the areas of your skin that might be in spots, the back of your neck, your forehead, inside your hat. Um, you want to protect yourself as uh, much as possible. So again, you got to think, okay? You, you just don't go for a walk in the woods. You make sure you know where you're going, you protect yourself, you have a map, and um, uh, you know what you're doing. 
those are sort of the, some of the very, very basics that I would recommend to any first time. And do you have any advice on like how you find good information about trails for your pre-planning? Because I know a big thing for me is I would try to look up about certain trails and maybe like that particular, like the Autobahn has a ton of information about their trails. They have a really great website, but some of these smaller, lesser known trails don't necessarily have a lot of information online or it's hard to find. So do you have advice on how people can find that information about the trails before they go out? Yeah, that's a great idea, Taylor, because again, um, I mentioned the land trust councils and you're right. You you can get a basic um, uh, description of the trail you're going to, but but you should really get the hiker's experience about what that trail is like. Okay. And and to do that, you have to find the right source. So um, I'll just tell you, if you're interested in any of the 25 hikes that I've been on, Again, you can go to your public library any Sunday and find 25 hikes in Rhode Island, which are good descriptions about what you're going to find. And I'll pretty much tell you there if they're easy, moderate, and there are a couple tougher hikes in Rhode Island as well. Uh, if you can't do that, um, you can go to Prodo.com and uh, do the search under my name, Kostreva, K-O-S-T-R-Z-E-W-A, and the 25 hikes will pop up. If you're a subscriber, if you're not a subscriber, you can go to my Facebook page and the Facebook postings are there. You can see what a description of what the hike is like. There are many, many other sources. Uh, there's an online service called alltrails.com. There's a free service and there's a paid service. Even the free service, there'll be trail reports where people tell you what the trail is like. There's water on the trail. There's heavy mosquitoes, not for novices, heavy rocks. So before I go on a hike I've never been on, I'll check all trails and read the trail reports. What's like this summer? And they're dated so you get a right up-to-date idea of what the trail is like. The Bible of Hiking uh, was written by a guy who used to be an editor at the Providence Journal named Ken Weber, who I knew was a great guy. He wrote several books. One is called Walks and Rambles in Rhode Island. and Another one is called More Walks and Rambles in Rhode Island. I actually found one at the library years ago when I was looking for it. They may still be there on the shelves. I have those two copies, and I think some of the online sellers will still sell you a, a copy of the book. I used a copy of the book for 10 or 12 bucks. Those are great trail descriptions of what the trails are like. And I usually read those if I'm going on those hikes. Ken Weber, excellent hiker, excellent writer, good description. Now, those Weber books were written like 20 years ago, okay? And the hikes have changed. So even though you read that, and I do read them, I will go to a current trail report to try to figure out. Uh, we had a lot of rain about a month ago, and you'll be surprised how much water is on the trails in Rhode Island. So you want to know that if you're going on a trail. Uh, we're going to go through a dry patch here, and I'm going to gather in August. Read the trail reports. What are the bugs like? What are the mosquitoes like? You'll also get reports of where the trees are down. Sometimes they're blocked. <clears throat> There hasn't been good trail maintenance occasionally. Yeah, so that's a very good question. Yeah. Know what you're doing. Don't walk climb into woods. Know what you're going to encounter. Know where you're headed. Yeah, I can definitely speak to not being prepared. Um, this was about nine years ago, ten years ago. My oldest kid was six weeks old. And um, we were on a family trip in upstate New York. And my dad said, let's go, let's go hike up, you know, this mountain. It says it's not like hiking, like climbing up a mountain. It's just a hike up a mountain. It was like Mount Woodstock. I don't remember what mountain it was. I'm up there with this kid strapped on the front of me in like the, you know, the uh, baby Bjorn carrier. And it, it, it was a nice hike, but none of us was prepared <laughs> to be going up this mountain. So I can just definitely, you know, 
definitely speak to be prepared to go up a mountain if you're going up a mountain. Um, <laughs> we made it. It was a lot of fun. Um, we walked past an old ruins of a hotel that was up there, and it was really, really, really neat. But we could have been more prepared. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good advice. Yeah. I mean, a, lot, a lot of people get up yeah. on a Saturday or Sunday morning, and the weather's beautiful, and they say, let's go <laughs> hike. Well, what I suggest, okay, just stop and think for about 10 minutes, okay? Yeah. <laughs> go online, figure out where you're going. Not only is that safer for you now, that as you said, you're going to see ruins or, or cellar holes or, or stone walls. If you yeah. know a little bit about what you're going to see before you see it, it makes it so much more interesting. Absolutely. If you're hiking with children, you know, I've said this a, a thousand times now, boy, is there a better education than taking your child for a hike in the woods, you get the outdoors, you can tell them about the environment, you're getting exercise, you can learn a little bit about the history of Rhode Island just by a short one-hour walk in the woods. Mm-hmm. You see the farmland, which is part of our agrarian economy, when at one time 80% of Rhode Island was farms. I'll say that again. 80% of Rhode Island was farms, and you can see that when you walk in the woods. But then when the Industrial Revolution came and the people moved off the farms, that all changed to industrial. So you see the remains of the little sluice gates, these little factories on the streams. And you can tell your children, yeah, this is where they used to have a wheel that turned, and it ground the meal you know, for food. Yeah. Or it made something that they sold to the factories in Providence. What a history lesson. Mm-hmm. Besides the fresh air, besides the exercise, Besides spending an hour with your child, what better way thing you can do? So again, if you want to go, just stop, read a little bit about what you're going to see. Man, you become a, become a great teacher in the woods there. It's, it's just a wonderful experience. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave off. But before we go into our ending segment, the last chapter, uh, John, is there anywhere else that you want to point? You talked a lot about the column, but is there anywhere else that you want to point people out to look for you and your writing? Um, yeah, well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, I received a number of requests for people you know, who would like me to speak, either through a Zoom call or wherever, and they've been great. I've met a lot of new people, and it's been wonderful. I did get an invitation from the uh, Cranston Public Library to speak on a Tuesday, August 3rd, at the main branch of the library at Sacanawset. I believe the program starts at 6.30. Again, I've heard from a number of people by email, and I've loved the exchanges uh, back and forth during the pandemic, you know, communicating with people and talking about Rhode Island and what they've seen, people pointing out to me, to me things that I saw and I didn't know quite what it was. It's been wonderful. But I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to a face-by-face public gathering with people, you know, my neighbors from Rhode Island, to talk a little bit about hiking, and if I can help them a little bit with um, getting out on the trails and a little bit of information, I would love to do that. So, again, I think that's coming up in uh, August 3rd, Tuesday, 630. If you'd like to come by, uh, I would love to meet you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. So, if you're listening to this episode the day it drops, the program is tonight. Uh, so, hopefully there <laughs> is some spots left for you. So, we like to wrap up the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter where we talk about a library or bookish-related question. Um, But I think I'm going to make it a little less bookish-related just to keep us on topic with what we've been talking about. Um, So, John, I'm particularly interested for you in what your favorite hike that you wrote about was. But, Dave, if you have a favorite hike of yours, too, that you want to jump in on this, um, basically, we'll keep the question at, like, what is your favorite hike to do? 
Well, I'll tell you, when you, when you ask about favorite hike, it's like the old joke. You know, how do you pick your favorite son? How do you pick your favorite <laughs> child? Okay, you, you can't do it. Um, a lot of favorites. But you ask for one. I'll mention one I did just a few weeks ago at Beavertail in Jamestown. So I think many of us have taken the, the loop road, which goes out the lighthouse and then comes back the other side. And some of us have sat on the rocks there to read. It's really a beautiful location. It's one of those unique sites in Rhode Island that is really special. But you may not know there's a trail there that, that sort of goes on the rocks and then goes back into the woods as you drive in. And so I took that loop hike. It's about three miles. And you start at the lighthouse and you go on what's called the East Passage, which is the east side of the island with a series of rocks there. It's fairly flat. And at low tide, you can walk all the way out north to a formation called Lion's Head Gorge. Lion's Head Gorge is named that because the water comes rushing in and it crashes into the rock there and it sounds like a lion. And you can sit there on the rocks and listen, looking north all the way over to the Newport Bridge, across the East Passage to Newport. You could spend days there. It's beautiful. And then when you leave there, you go on the loop, you head west, back into a trail, and you see a military history during World War II. When that beaver tail we use as the main site to monitor ship, enemy ship traffic on both passages and on the Narragansett Bay. The bunkers are still there. You can see them. You walk through a section in the back. There's an area called Spray Cliff where the, the military had a secret installation to experiment with MIT engineers. Get that? Navy and MIT kids building the best radar for the aircraft fighting the Japanese at that time. And they developed things that would help them fight uh, the Japanese fighters. You can see the remains of that. Then you get out to the West Passage. There's a trail that runs south. I've never been there before. There are cliffs, 50 to 60 feet, looking straight down. Beautiful. You'd never know you were in Rhode Island. And you look across the West Passage over towards Narragansett and then Point Judith, way to the south. And you walk all along that cliff and you see that wonderful scene all the way out. And you end up on a loop back at the lighthouse, that wonderful lighthouse which has been a beacon to ships for hundreds of years. So I have a thousand favorites, but as far as a unique Rhode Island hike, you can take any parts of that and see something. You know what? I don't think you'll see anything like that with the history, the natural geography, there's a train any place else on the East Coast. It is absolutely stunning. So that's my uh, nomination for the favorite of the favorites. Wow. I can't follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I was I was gonna say um, the Rhode Island Audubon Reserve at Caratunk is mm. a, is a nice. Um, I like that one, especially with my kids, because it can be as long or as short as you want it to be. They've done a great job making a variety of different loops through that um, that area. And John, you made me think about it too, because um, it seems like it is an old farm that's been yes. kind of you know preserved, and um, there's a lot of different things to see. My kids like you know it's nice. It changes a lot in the seasons, so they've got a really nice bird-watching area where they have a lot of um, birdhouses kind of arrayed along a hill, which is nice. There's a lot of wetlands, um, so you get a, a nice mix of everything, and you know, if everyone starts to feel like they need lunch, you can just cut it short down a path, or you can keep walking if everyone's having a good time. Um, so that's that's definitely a favorite, and it's close to home. That's, that's a great recommendation, Dave, because, and you mentioned the changing seasons. Again, there's nothing better than taking a, a youngster out on the trail to show them it in the summertime, the fall, and yep. the winter. 
I mean, the terrain changes, the birds change, the, the flow of the waters through the, the, the stream change. You can learn a great deal. And I, and I think it really uh, gives kids a love of nature. Um, mm -hmm. You start hiking early and exploring, you know, getting your mind to wonder about what might have built here. How did this farm work? How did farmers making a living here? Wow, that really encourages exploration. Thank you. Yeah. And you see that in different seasons. It's 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 a good idea, Dave. That's a that's a wonderful thought. Yeah, thank you. Mine is going to be like even more anticlimactic. But like I said, I'm still a baby hiker. I haven't. I I don't. At least my boyfriend keeps saying he's like we haven't really hiked. We've just went for walks. Um. <laughs> so, but that's fine. So one of the yeah. walks that I really enjoy is the trail, the walking trails at Goddard Park. Mm. Um, cause it's really beautiful that like through the trees, you can see the ocean and it's really hard to get lost. Cause if you just keep the ocean on one side of you, sure. you're going to get back to that, to the, like out of the woods and out of the walking trail <laughs> eventually. Um, so that's great for me. Who's kind of directionally challenged. It's like, can we still see the ocean? Okay, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just love it because, yeah, you get the ocean, but it's also woodsy. There's like a pond in one part of it if you go to a certain part. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of like my go-to. If And, and we know it because we've done it uh, several times now. So you say about waking up on a Saturday or Sunday morning. If it's if it hasn't been really rainy the few days because it, it is mostly dirt through there. But um, that's like our Saturday or Sunday morning. Like, hey, I want to go out. Let's go. To God, and it's not far from where we are living currently. So, yeah, that that is a great hike to God, and again, it's close to the population center, so a lot of people have access to it. You're absolutely right; it's safe. You really can't get lost there because the, the trails are wide, and the ocean is right there to give you a guide. And there's plenty to see. Um, there's that this formation of rocks, which jet out to call Sally Rocks, which is beautiful to see when you get out to the point, or you whack back to where the old carousel was at that point. You walk by the beach, and then you hike in the other direction of that marina across the passage, which is great there. So, yeah, that, that's a wonderful family uh, hike. Uh, you can go three to five miles there if you want, or you can do a mile. And, again, it is safe, and it is easy to walk. So that, that's a great recommendation. It's a, it's a nice walk. So thank you for joining us and chatting with us today. And thank you everyone for listening. If you want to reach out to us here at Downtime, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And now you can also reach out to us via social media with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. Um, so thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. Do you do the woo every time? And I now have gotten yeah. in the habit of being like, we did it. We made a podcast every time. <laughs>